0: Hello and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the ALT Learn podcast. I'm John Tate and I'll be your host as we break down the craft of teaching and the science of learning, what this pedagogy looks like in the classroom, and get to find out how our teachers are turning all this theory into practice. So let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of the ALT Learn podcast where we've got a cracking episode lined up for you today discussing how we can rethink staff wellbeing. So I'm delighted to say that alongside me on today's show, we have another external guest of the podcast, Kelly Hannigan. Kelly is a mental health and wellbeing consultant and has spent a professional career passionately putting wellbeing at the heart of education by focusing on enhancing the life and learning experience for people in education. She leads school improvement development processes, creating outstanding outcomes and awards for many organizations. She's a trailblazer within the Wellbeing Lead Network for supporting pastoral teams and has been recognized by the DFE, the NCB, the Anna Freud Center, and the Educational Support Partnership as a lead influencer of mental health and well-being in education. Kelly's an active speaker and writer of well-being in education, and is passionate about creating the conditions under which teachers, pupils, and families can flourish. So a huge Northern warm welcome to the podcast, Kelly. It's fantastic to have you with us today, talking about something so important to our listeners.
1: Oh, wow. What an introduction. Uh, and there's always that sem- sense of warmthness, isn't there, from people in the north. So thank you so much, John, for inviting me onto this podcast this morning.
0: Thanks, Kelly. And what listeners won't know is that we connected uh, about a month or a couple of months ago when I was down in London speaking at a couple of conferences and you were speaking there as well. Um, and I think to, to you know, say we really hit it off. We had a, a great chat after us and I was really looking forward to connecting with you. So, yeah, it's been a long time coming really over the last few weeks getting this sorted. But I'm really excited about uh, about chatting today. So, yeah, thank you very much indeed. Right. Let, let, let's let get into the, uh, into the questions then. And I, I want to really say from the start to any of our listeners, wherever you're listening, This is about teachers at all levels and everything that you can do. Isn't that right, Kelly? I want to make that kind of clear, you know, right from the offset.
1: Yes, that wellbeing offer should be for everyone every day, incredibly important. So an inclusive offer for wellbeing considers every person within the school community.
0: Fantastic. Right. So I've got a series of questions, as you would expect, Kelly. So I'm going to start with the the first one, which is what does wellbeing mean to you? Because I often think that lots of people have different ideas on what it means.
1: Definitely. And I agree with you there. Well-being is unique. What supports my well-being will look very different to what supports your well-being, John. But for me, the concept of well-being refers to the state of being comfortable, being healthy, both physically and emotionally, and also being happy, but not being happy all of the time. That's not what we're aiming for. It's the concept that encompasses various aspects of our lives, so our social relationships, our quality of life, and it's not just about the absence of illness. It's also about feeling fulfilled and satisfied, and most importantly, having a sense of purpose and being able to cope with challenges that life often presents.
0: Fantastic. So let me let me pick up on that last word you mentioned there about challenges. So, bringing it into the kind of into the education sphere, then what are the current challenges around staff wellbeing in schools then?
1: Well, we only have to look at the recent Teacher Wellbeing Index that was undertaken by the Education Support Charity. And it highlighted that 75% of teachers are stressed, 59% 59% of staff are not confident in disclosing those unmanageable stress um, situations or mental health issues with their employer. So there's a real sense of fear around that. And it also highlighted that 42% of staff considered their organization's culture to have a negative effect on their well-being. Wow. And I also want to highlight the DFE Working Lives of Teachers and Leaders Wave One report. This highlighted that two-thirds of teachers are spending half their working hours on admin and how much of that admin is purposeful, how much of it has an impact on the outcomes for the children and young people It also highlighted that a quarter of staff are considering leaving the profession in 2023. Now this report was undertaken a year ago and there was a delay in releasing that report. And I'm imagining that that statistic is a lot higher right now. It also stated that 76% of teachers are not satisfied with the national changes to pay in 21, 22. And we know that to be true because with our current strike situations, Um, People are feeling a real sense of um, dissatisfaction and they're not feeling valued within their roles. And we know that two in five school leaders plan to leave the profession within the next five years. And that's a huge 40 percent. Imagine the impact that that's going to have on school community. And 54 percent of those school leaders often go into work unwell this paints a grave picture john for the future of education there is certainly an acceleration of current worrying trends including an increasing burnt out workforce i've experienced burnout and i know exactly how debilitating that is and then if we think about the worsening of the retention crisis and poor health outcomes for the education workforce change needs to happen right now
0: wow i mean that that's there's some real damning statistics in there isn't there, that you've mentioned there um, and a couple of things I wanted to pick up on. First of all, you, you mentioned about a really high statistic of people saying that it, it was actually their workplace that had significantly contributed to their to their kind of poor mental health uh, and, and well being. You also mentioned about you know administrative tasks that that take up a significant amount of time, but maybe don't have any impact. Um, so I want to I want to look at those two in, in in a second, but also I think we we obviously need to be clear as well that you know you and I and 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 people on the ground we're not going to be able to change that kind of pay scale and in and, and and the pay you know ourselves in our schools and yes you know the, the strikes and things in terms of the pressure that has been put on the government, but actually what I want to look at is thinking about those administrative tasks and thinking about that kind of culture in the own in in their own school and there's a phrase I like to use a lot that you know we create the weather in our schools you know we're the ones that actually can create. You know that dark cloud, or can, or can create that nice kind of sunny scene every day as, as as leaders. So, what do you think then needs to change if we're going to make a significant significant difference here in our schools?
1: I think creating that sense of autonomy is absolutely vital. So when we think about teachers and other school staff, so when we consider our support staff, our environmental staff, our leadership teams, and our governors, we need to be given that certain degree of autonomy within our work. Um, So that means that we can make decisions about how we perform in our roles and how we manage our workload. This in turn will certainly increase job satisfaction and motivation, um, as well as to lead for better outcomes for students. And I want to highlight the importance of head teachers and school leaders taking time to work from home. It's really hard to have that strategic view and to be able to do that deep focus work when you're constantly serving others. There's those constant interruptions and by prioritizing your work at home, whether that be half a day a week, one day a week or every other week, what you're allowing to happen is that space for autonomy to grow for people to learn from their mistakes and that develops that sense of trust so we need to trust our staff and give them the support that they need to succeed and this means providing the resources and purposeful training as well as being and listening ear for their concerns and feedback and that feeds into our communication as well effective communication is crucial for building trust and promoting the positive school culture. So that means being transparent about decisions and policy as well as providing those regular opportunities for feedback and discussion. I often shout about your voice matters, but do not take people's voice if you're not gonna create purpose or action. That's incredibly important. And share why you're asking for their voice and what your intention is around that. And another thing that comes up a lot, and I've been part of working within trust where there's been a huge sense of change, change management, if it's not done right in an effective way where communication is key, that has a dramatic impact and negative impact on a school environment. So we need to be able to adapt to change and circumstances and embrace new ideas and approaches. But this means having that effective change management process in place. And I would highlight, take, a look at the management working standards there's some great resources there with the health and safety executive and then professional development so important but not just professional development personal development to develop that sense of self-awareness and robustness and resilience to be able to cope in the role and i want to just top end that uh, bottom end that with the importance of having supervision and coaching within schools. Um, and my training for reflective supervision in schools is hugely popular. And I think this highlights the needs for people to have someone as their emotional backstop.
0: Fantastic. And uh, and uh, when you were initially talking about it, you kind of led my mind down when you talked about head teachers and working from home, I was, I was kind of thinking about whole school leadership here, but then the longer you talked actually in that answer there about Trust and about communication and how you do that and the change management. I was actually thinking this is relevant to leaders at all levels, isn't it, Kelly? We're not just talking about schools here and how how are schools lead. We're we're talking about how an English lead leads their English department, how a phase lead leads that. And you know that, that that that's right, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's it's everyone. But I am particularly concerned about our leadership at the moment in education. We only have to consider the recent devastating news um, of Ruth Perry's death. Uh And that's really put a spotlight on the current pressures that school leaders are under. They're often running on empty and you can't serve a diet of well-being to others when your own diet is malnourished. So it's absolutely important that school leaders have a sense of stability when the ground is often shaking beneath them. Um, so I believe it's absolutely vital that we look after everybody within a school community and consider all within our wellbeing strategies.
0: Yeah, I really like that. And that's something that I've written about before is, is the idea, that are you giving 100% to your students or are you just giving 100% of what you've got left in the tank? And a lot of people think they're giving 100%, but actually if they're not looking after themselves, if they're not prioritizing their own well-being, then they're only giving what they've got left. And actually, our kids our you know, and our communities, especially our most disadvantaged and vulnerable, they need the very, very best of us, not just what we've got left. So I think that that that's a really important, um, important thing to think about there. So thinking about that then, and moving on to that, my next question, which is a perfect link really, talking about um, prioritizing our own well-being and and, and making sure we, we, we're giving our students the very, very best. How can then teachers, school professionals, leaders, support staff, how can we all actually prioritize our own well-being? And if you've got any kind of examples or golden nuggets that people can take away, that people can use and put into practice the very next day.
1: Yeah, of course, John. And I'm gonna be really honest with you. I'm working on this stuff every day myself. I have to be that role model for wellbeing. And it is hard, especially when you love your job and you're very passionate about your job. You tend to give everything to your job. um, And then what's left is the rest of you for yourself and everyone else, your loved ones, for example. I really do believe that self-care isn't selfish. It reduces the risks of burnout and increases our emotional intelligence. And I remember someone saying to me, what does self-care feel like? How is it different from when you're not prioritizing it? And I say to them, you only get that light bulb moment when you really set down those boundaries around self-care and you start to implement those everyday habits. And it's only then that you realize, how did I cope before without this? Mm -hmm. So my simple message is here is that you need to prioritize self-care. And I've created a new training model called the seven pillars of self-care. And this focuses on mental self-care, emotional self-care, physical self-care, environmental self-care, spiritual self-care, recreational self-care and social self-care. And essentially what this program will help us consider is ways that we rest, eat, move, sleep, learn, connect and
0: reflect. Fantastic. And I suppose I've got a sporting background and I often kind of you know, make, make kind of links back to the sporting world and say, well, you, you wouldn't expect um, an athlete or an or, or an elite kind of sports performer, whether it's a football or whether it's a sprinter, you wouldn't expect them to be up all night um, and not recovering and not resting in between training and matches and games, because we know that that, that creates overuse injuries, it creates mental errors in the, in the last minutes of games. Actually, you know, when you look into professional sport and an elite level sport, they talk about, the next training session starts the minute the first one finishes because it's about the recovery phase, and we would never expect somebody to perform at their best level in in that in that uh, kind of environment and, and forum if they don't do that. So I think we need to then treat our bodies and our minds more like athletes do because you know the job we do is is is, is even more important so yeah I, I absolutely concur there with that so breaking that down a little bit and you mentioned there you know things about um you know personal um, and, and kind of sleep and environment etc et so let's have a look at some kind of small steps then to improve wellbeing. what what can what can people do now if they're thinking right okay i'm on this kelly i get this i want to improve my uh, my self-care i'm committed to it i want to do it but Give me some kind of examples then that that, that people can do.
1: Yeah, I think, first of all, we need to consider those small habit changes because it takes 66 days of doing something consistently for it to become a more entrenched habit. So for me personally, sleep hygiene is absolutely vital. So I ensure that I have seven to eight hours sleep every day. I create a sleep-inducing environment. So I really struggle with getting to sleep. Um, so I'm actually going through the perimenopause at the moment and we know this is something that's really been highlighted, especially within education and across all sectors
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so what i've done is i've found ways to help me naturally fall to sleep so i use an app called sleep fruits
0: uh-huh. um,
1: and it's absolutely brilliant it's relaxation music and i put my timer on spotify and i'm asleep but before that 45 minute time has gone off before that music stops mm-hmm. but i also consider what am i doing before i go to sleep how am i preparing for sleep and there's the um free On approach for sleep so this uh, there's some research into if you don't eat three hours before sleep that can help induce sleep if you don't uh, drink anything like caffeine uh, at least two hours before sleep and in an hour before bed you must not be going on your phones Mm -hmm. uh, because those are the things that wake us up and in terms of thinking about the way we move if you say to me, exercise, John, I'm going to run a mile, I'll run faster than if I'm actually taking part <laughs> in exercise. My husband says to me, I actually walk faster than, uh, I walk faster than I run. So uh, he's the marathon runner and I allow him to have that celebration. Right. But for me, physical activity and also considering the hobbies and interests, I absolutely love swimming. I have this thing called stinking thinking. I'm constantly coming up with ideas and concepts to support others. Mm -hmm. And I have to do something to switch my brain off. So swimming is the thing that I can do that stops me thinking. Also bike riding, I absolutely love connecting with nature. And there is scientific evidence to prove that if we spend time in green splates, so out in nature and blue space by water or by the sea, it significantly improves our wellbeing. So those are the two things that I've um, embedded into my um, practice of self-care, um, but I constantly commit to it and re-evaluate it. So I explore the things that I'm doing that may be high priority, but have a low impact. Um, and I'm looking at those things that may be low priority, i.e. self-care, but it will have a huge impact. We're seven times less productive when we're in burnout, um so that should be a call to action, but also knowing who our support networks are incredibly important
0: fantastic and and I think that any person listening right now will um will, will be able to see this because I was certainly seeing it there through the lenses of myself, but also through the students as well you know and I, having two teenage kids myself, actually lots of those things we need to be. Not just championing ourselves and 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 demonstrating and being um you know being kind of role models for, but also really kind of promoting for our for our young people because we know that through significant changes in their lives, whether that kind of is, is, is puberty, whether it's kind of you know things at home in terms of you know your parent issues et cetera et cetera, and then exams and the pressure and stress that that brings along, that actually all of these things are just really sound uh, well-being activities for human beings. They they're not they're not you know exclusive to teachers. So I think that all those things you mentioned there, I think we should all also be promoting, um, you know, through our schools, because as you said at the, or as we both said at the start about the importance of wellbeing, it's for everyone in the organisation. And that well, that wasn't, that isn't exclusive to adults. It's about everyone. So, I, I mean, there's nothing there that I, I think that, that wouldn't work on uh, students either, is there it, is it, Kelly?
1: No, and we have to be the role models of wellbeing. And I'm calling out school leaders. How are you role modeling wellbeing to your school community? If you're going into work early, And leaving late. So if your car is the first one in the car park and the last one to leave at the end of the day, what message does that give to your staff? So I think if you can take a check in and take your emotional temperature, check the weather in your head, John. So Uh, I always say to people, how's the weather in your head? And what you're doing is you're demonstrating and role modelling how to look after yourself in order to look after others. Um, so it's incredibly important to be that role model. And for our children, all of my training and resources are for everyone. So they can be used with children and young people. They can be used with staff, um, education staff, and they can be used with parents and carers. If we want to create that consistent approach across all of education, we need to consider all stakeholders.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I completely concur with that idea of if you're if you're role modeling, being the first car in the car, park, the last car out, what does that signal to especially teachers who are coming into the profession as well and actually looking at looking at you and thinking, well, that's what I have to do. And it almost just creates this snowball momentum of everyone does it because everyone has always done it. And they think that's what they have to do. That might be the same with marketing and feedback as well. You know, if you are a subject leader and you are constantly, constantly, constantly thinking that you've got to you know, put red pen on books, what does that say to your early career teachers that are coming in? And you might say, well, it's, this is just what I want to do. But I think you need to then reflect on what message are you sending as that leader and people will look to, look up to you as a leader to think, well, that's that's the gold standard, and that's what I need to do. So, yeah, absolutely, we've we've got to be more conscious about the the messages that we're sending, and that leaving at three forty five, four o'clock is absolutely fine um, because you are prioritizing your well being. You're going home to pick the kids up. You're going up to do this. You're going for a walk, and it may be that you end up doing some work, you know, later on that night, whatever. But you don't have to be sat in your office modeling the kind of that that kind of work into the um you know work into the bone every single day so yeah i think it's really important for us all to all to reflect actually and, and and look around our organizations and schools and see where that might or might not be happening um right moving on slightly to something different i know you and i have talked about this before and and, and it comes up quite a bit um in all walks of life not just in teaching but what are your thoughts then on imposter syndrome kelly and how it impacts teaching because i know that this sometimes has a really kind of you know there's a a huge link there into kind of well-being
1: yeah definitely and I have imposter syndrome but I've become friends with it and that's the key message there (laughs) when you're constantly suppressing and not expressing you're often uh, suppressing with unhealthy coping mechanisms so I'm going to shout out to everyone who's listening to this podcast, how often do you go home and have a glass of wine that ends up in a bottle of wine? How often do you turn to food to suppress emotions? Um, We can use substance as a way to punish ourselves, to self-sabotage, but also to reward ourselves. And if we took a lens on imposter syndrome, we know that that it's that psychological phenomenon That often involves us feeling self-doubt and feeling inadequate, Mm -hmm. um, despite evidence of our competence and our accomplishments. Um, So no matter what we do, we feel it's not good enough and we need to do better. Imposter syndrome is not a recognised psychiatric disorder, but it is a common experience amongst High achievers, including professionals um, working in education. So I think it's really important to be clear that many people experience imposter syndrome, and there is a um a real balanced mix between men and women. Often there's the misconception that more women suffer with imposter syndrome, but that's not the case. Mm-hmm. I think it's around 52% of women um, and 48% of men. Okay. Um, and people with imposter syndrome, like myself, we tend to believe that our successes are due to luck, timing, or other external factors, wow. rather than our own abilities and, and hard work. And we also can sometimes have that fear of being exposed as a fraud or an imposter. I am a confident public speaker, um, and you've seen me speak, John. But just yeah, yeah. before I go on to that stage, I always have this imposter. My imposter's called Bob, so I've given <laughs> the a name. And Bob will say oh, this is not going to be very good. The audience are not going to enjoy this. And I simply say, I have a mantra for my imposter, and I say, thank you for sharing, but I'm an adult, and I'm absolutely fine. Um, and just that simple mantra balances uh, my anxiety. And then I go on, and I I do a brilliant talk, and I get fantastic feedback. So, you know, it's, it's really... I think it's understanding the knowing is absolutely important, but also recognizing some of those symptoms as well. So procrastination is a byproduct of and a coping mechanism of imposter syndrome. So if you find that you put things off to the last minute, it may be linked to imposter syndrome. Um, And remember that ask yourself. And remind yourself that remember, do not let your desires for perfection get in the way of being good enough. Good enough is good enough.
0: Wow, that's great. And that was something I was I wanted to pick up actually on when you said it right at the start and then you led you led into it actually about you've you've become friends with your imposter syndrome. And then you kind of went on to talk about the fact that you've even named him uh, as Bob. So just can you just talk me a bit more about kind of how you've you know, for our listeners, how you've become friends with your imposter syndrome, What you know, what it, what it, what what it's allowed you to do. And you, you give a brief example there about kind of, you know, before you go on stage. But how, how has that really helped you? And, and what does it really mean to kind of become friends with your imposter syndrome?
1: I think it's understanding that your imposter is often you're in the child having yeah. that internal dialogue and um, creating self soothing techniques. So I'm someone who is very tactile um, and I have, you know, huge sensory needs. So smells um, stuff like um, aromatherapy are really calming for me. Um, but also celebrating the small wins is absolutely mm. vital. And consider the way you talk to yourself. Would you talk to anyone else like that? And you need to stop it. You need to be kind and caring to yourself and step away from those social comparisons because they're not helpful. They're really unhealthy. Um, I think that it's really helpful to speak to people. So if you have the opportunity for coaching or some form of reflective supervision, that can be helpful because that can catch that behaviour. But I think just try not to go into conflict with your imposter because it becomes louder and louder. It's about creating uh, that sense of, understanding um and kindness towards yourself because our imposter is essentially trying to protect us Mm -hmm. it connects to our fear mechanisms and and I always say to myself I'm going to function today from a space of love and care rather than from fear and mantras really do make a difference meditation mindfulness um really important but my key message is find the thing that suits you because we
0: are all individuals well, wow, I I love that. And I just picking up on one thing you said that I, that I really, really liked in terms of, you know, would you speak to your, you know, would you speak to other people the way you speak to yourself? And I think that's a that's a there's a really good message there about kind of taking care of ourselves, um, first and foremost. And also it, summarizing what you'd said over the last few minutes really, being conscious that you have you might have an imposter syndrome and, and being conscious of that that, that voice of that person is there. And then once you're conscious of it once you are once you're able to then deal with it you know in 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 different ways however you suit that but if you're kind of if you're scared of that and you're trying to push it away all the time i think it's it, it, it's appreciating that it's there and like you said using it as a as a positive um and using it as that as as that kind of positive motivation rather rather than negative so that, that that's great now Hopefully, there'll be lots of people that'll be kind of thinking, "Wow, I, you know, someone else is like me, or someone else has got that. It's not just me." And I think there's there's a real, hopefully, understanding there that it's it that every you know we all have this, um, no matter how confident we look on the outside, no matter how successful we may be, no matter how many public speaking talks or stages or or, or assemblies we've done or whatever it may be, there's still that kind of those nerves and there's still that thing inside us saying really, you know, are you good enough? Are you going to be able to do this? So I think having an understanding of that for everyone, that it's not just you out there, I, I think is brilliant. Um, moving on then into into looking at kind of some, I suppose for leaders now, but leaders at all level, how can we then integrate some of these wellbeing practices into school life um, for either ourselves or others? So what, what, what can kind of, we talked about individual teachers uh, and we've talked about kind of individual people there in terms of imposter syndrome, but in terms of school leaders now and structures, what can we do um, across our schools to try and really promote this?
1: Um, Great question. I think it is being really open and honest and shouting loud about your wellbeing offer. So when I go into school through my consultancy role, I often ask um, if I can have some time speaking to the people in the school community. And those people that I approach and I say, do you know what's on offer to support your wellbeing and your mental health within this school? Usually the only people that can answer are the people that receive that help. So I think we need to get better at advertising what we have on offer in our wellbeing menus within schools and settings. Um, so, for example, it may be uh, display boards because wellbeing should be threaded through every fabric of the school community. Um, you get that feeling as soon as you walk into a school. Um, as soon as I walk into schools, it's how the receptionist greets me. It's how everyone's interacting with each other. It's I'm looking at for those noticeables and for those social cues around mental health and wellbeing and, and self care. Well-being is so much more than a laminated sheet on the back of the toilet door. Um, And what we must consider is how do we inclusively embed well-being into school? So we need to prioritise self-care and offer learning around ways to prioritise self-care. Model healthy behaviours. Um, This is incredibly important. So I'm going to ask, how many of you take a lunch break how many of you have time to sit down and eat your lunch? Mm-hmm. And something new that I've introduced within schools is a staff room policy. And what this looks at is that when you go into the staff room and you sit down and you eat your lunch, so, for example, a school leader will say, I'm going to make a conscious effort. I'm going to go into the staff room. They sit down and they're just bombarded with questions. Or can you do this for me? Or can I ask you this question? Now, that's not effective. Now, imagine if you had a, a, an agreement where in the staff room it was a social space where the only thing you talked about was social things. Get to know each other, get to know your people, sit and have your lunch, have time out to go for a walk. Even if it's a 15 minute walk, it recharges your batteries. So break times are incredibly important. And to foster that positive culture uh, for well-being, school leaders need to create a positive and supportive culture within their school, which includes promoting relationships celebrating successes and providing opportunities for staff to collaborate and connect and create signposting roadmaps so that people know where to get help and this could be a pdf document that you create on canva it could be something you share on your website if you have a staff portal Um, it could be something you talk about because the simple act of knowing where to get support can sometimes relieve some of those symptoms
0: Brilliant. Fantastic. So, and I often speak to school leaders who think sometimes that, you know, that if we go down too much of a wellbeing route, then it might have an impact on, on outcomes because of we taking our foot off the gas and this kind of stuff. But can you, can you really kind of debunk that and give us a, 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 or share a success story of how putting staff wellbeing at the heart of education has actually improved outcomes? Because I think that's what we're, that's what we're after, aren't we? We, we, We're trying to get high wellbeing that will then actually improve outcomes, not, not go the other way
1: yeah um, and I've got many cases i to just share with you because I've recently led on the Department for Education Wellbeing for Education Return Program that involved me delivering um training to all of the schools um and settings within Kent County Council, and there's some four hundred provisions and I very much believe that it's all about the relationships that we have with ourselves and with others um and I think this is why so many people come back and book my service, and I think it's because of those professional relationships. That I've created with those environments but I'm going to give you um, an example of how it works and why it's so important Um, so I was invited into a school to as part of a school improvement plan a school was put in a primary school was put into special measures the school was really struggling it was a large free-form entry primary school um, that was set in a suburban area. Um, there was a real mix of poverty and affluence within that area. Teachers could work four miles up the road and have a four grand pay rise. Um, so there was a real sense of need to keep people working in the school. When I first arrived at the school, some 50% of staff were long-term supply staff. The school was a broken community in terms of relationships, If I'm going to be honest with you, and behaviour symptoms were at an time high. Um, staff morale was was an all-time low as well. Um, So what I did was I worked with an incredible leader and I said, look, let's put wellbeing at the heart of education. I promise you, if we do this together um, with the whole school community, because it's a done with, not a done to, I said, we will see those raises in attainment, attendance, and also help with the recruitment crisis so we did for two years we put well-being at the heart of education in a purposeful way we used the voice of people to consider ways to manage workload collaborative planning um we off- we introduced a well-being menu for staff as well that was led by their voice and The outcome was that the attainment levels were the highest they'd ever been. The school was awarded outstanding um, for the uh, personal social development of the children and young people. But I always say, so what? Remember, we don't do things to be Ofsted outstanding. We do things to be outstanding at what we do. But the magical memory that I have from working with this school is the environmental staff said to me, Kelly, unless you can arrange for us to have more wages and work less hours, we're not really interested in, in this well-being stuff. And <laughs> I kept going back and kept inviting them into the program and into the support. And t- They kept saying no. But at the end, when I said goodbye to the school, a bit like Nanny McPhee, when my work was done (laughs) and I left, and the school was in a really good place, Uh and I was able to leave that legacy. The, the cleaning staff came up to me and said, Kelly, do you know what? I didn't believe in this stuff, but I've seen the magic that it's done within the school community. The children are happier, the staff are happier, and the parents and carers are more satisfied. And do you know what? Just the simple act of you asking us and inviting us into everything made us feel a sense of belonging. And we found what our well-being thing is. Um, we now go out for a walk at lunchtime instead of moaning in the staff room.
0: Wow. Isn't that, I mean, I, I, I imagine that probably brought a tear to your eye, Kelly, to be honest. Yeah, still
1: now. I've got a lump in my throat now yeah. because I am, I am a, heart, a work of heart, John. I literally eat, sleep and breathe this stuff because I really care. I really care about the outcomes of children and young people. I struggled in school myself and I come from a traumatic background and I knew what it was like to be in a school and not feel that sense of belonging or inclusivity. I wasn't good at learning, but I was really good at lots of other things. Um, so I think we have an important role here to shine a spotlight on everyone's special, unique qualities, because we're all brilliant, but sometimes we label our brilliance on academia. And and I don't think that's right. When people feel confident, they then take risks with their learning.
0: That's fantastic. That's such a lovely case study and story for for, for people to kind of reflect on and think about and think that actually it's not just about you know doing more work and how can we do more and how can we put more hours in. Because actually as we've as we've said earlier in this podcast, all that does is create people who are tired, people who are burnt out, people who are at the end of their tether, people who are more likely to snap um and um and lose their temper or, or to shout or all that type of stuff. And actually by going the other way and by you know, by really focusing and, and prioritizing well being, then the magic can happen because it can be a far better place to work, to learn, to to be part of. Um, you know, to interact with and to socialize with. So I think that that, that's a fantastic case study for all people to, 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 uh, to consider, especially school leaders in in, in terms of what they can do and how they can really take this, uh, you know, as a real priority and really take this seriously and not just have it as a a tick box. Oh, well, you know, we, 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 you know, we've done a meeting on wellbeing, therefore we've done wellbeing, you know, all those ridiculous things. Actually it's it's about real prioritizing what's really going to make a difference uh, and really taking some time to reflect on that because, as you mentioned there, those things don't happen overnight, do they Kelly? You know, that this takes a long time of, of of kind of, you know, sweating the small stuff really and really and really strategizing. So I mean, I imagine that, you know, that, that case study you talked about wasn't just a few weeks or a few months. It was over a longer period of time
1: yeah it was and what schools tend to do now is they buy me in for so many days over the academic year and I'm really flexible with my time um, because I think it's really important to have that constant contact so I don't just go into school do my day's work and they don't hear from me it's that relationship that I build and the support that I offer over the academic year that's really helpful and we must remember well-being in schools is not a tick box exercise it has to be done in a purposeful and caring way. But also we must remember that we should share expectations around work commitments, incredibly important and around learning. And we must remind people that we all have our individual responsibility for our own wellbeing. And then there's a collective responsibility within an organisation. So what we must not do is throw well-being down um, in, a, in a threatening way to school leaders, because that has a dramatic impact on the school culture.
0: Right. That's brilliant, Kelly. And and you've given us so many kind of golden nuggets and case studies and, and lots of things for people to reflect on. So if people are buzzing with excitement, they've got lots of things going around in their mind, they want to do more about this either themselves uh, or as a school leader. How can you or, or where can you signpost people to for your go to resources and publications to really foster a positive well-being culture in education?
1: Yeah great question. Let's be honest there's so many resources out there and my worry is that there's a white noise around mental health and wellbeing and it can become like wallpaper but these are my go-to resources so Andrew Cowley's book the wellbeing toolkit is a fantastic book, and you can see a case study of my work within that. He also has the wellbeing curriculum, which is a fantastic book as well. You can also take a look at the big book of whole school wellbeing. Um, there's some fantastic examples from over 22 authors, um, and I've written a chapter about how to develop positive empowerment programmes for parents and carers in schools within that book. And most recently, I absolutely love how Roberts' book, which is called Botheredness. Um, I'd highly recommend taking a look at that. You've also got the Mentally Healthy Schools website that has um, resources for staff wellbeing. Um, pupil and student wellbeing and um, parent and carer wellbeing. And I'd like to spotlight the Hub of Hope. Um, If you go to www.thehubofhope and pop in your postcode, it gives you lots of local resources for mental health and wellbeing within your local area. And not forgetting the fantastic charity, Education Support, they have fantastic resources, which includes um, a hotline, for people to connect with they also have lots of other resources uh, to support staff well-being and you can connect with me um, and my resources so i support all phases of education from early years right the way through to further education we have a three-pronged approach which factors in staff well-being um, pupil well-being um, and family engagement and family community well-being
0: Brilliant. And it's interesting you you mentioned about Howell Roberts there. We had Howell as a guest on the podcast about two episodes ago. Uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time with Howell and I think he's fantastic. And that idea of kind of, you know, getting the kids to be bothered, but also yourself as well, I, I think is really important. So before I go to my last question and give you a, a final kind of soapbox moments to kind of to t- to give your philosophy and education. You mentioned there about people contacting you. So before I forget, can you can you tell people where they can where they can contact you, Kelly, or how they can contact you, whether it's on social media, whether it's via email, whether it's via you know website or the trust.
1: Yeah, um, please do get in touch. Um, I'm always connecting with people and get great energy out of collaborative work. So you can find me on Twitter at Mindwork Matters, on Facebook at Mindwork Matters. You can also find me on Instagram at Mind underscore Work underscore Matters. And you can find me under my profile, LinkedIn, Kelly Hannigan. Or you can email me, kelly at MindworkMatters.com so that's how you can contact me please do get in touch and i say i love to connect with people
0: fantastic and i, I would absolutely urge anybody who, who is thinking about even just for a conversation or 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 some thoughts or even just to follow the uh, the work that kelly puts out um as i said earlier you know kelly and i connected in london uh, um a couple of months ago um for the first time and we've we've stayed connected since we've we've, we've chatted we've discussed things um and it's led to this podcast so i would always I advise people to reach out, make those connections, um, and widen your horizons on, on on other things in education. So, my final question, then, Kelly, and your, as I said, your your soapbox moment. If you, if you haven't had that already, to talk about kind of you know a, a final kind of you know, takeaway message and your your own philosophy for well being, and a, a little bit of a call to action for people if they haven't already kind of been inspired by what you've said.
1: I work with schools both nationally and internationally um, and I think it's really important that if we purposefully put well-being at the heart of education for everyone every day, it looks after the life and learning outcomes, increases job satisfaction, helps people to feel valued and gives them that sense of belonging that provides that social scaffolding for community spirit. Um, So please, if you can now just take some simple steps and put well-being at the heart of education
0: there we go brilliant well I just want to say a massive thank you Kelly um I hope you've enjoyed it uh, as as much as I have uh connecting again it's been a it's been a great conversation and hopefully um you know anybody who's been listening at whatever level uh, can can take something away so uh, yeah just a, a huge thanks once again Kelly
1: oh thank you for inviting me on
0: thanks for listening to the ALT Learn podcast We'll be back soon with another episode where we'll be speaking to more of our teachers and finding out how they're turning theory into practice. Until then, take care.